morning, everyone. Good morning, everyone. <laughs> Just want to make sure there's someone out there. <laughs> Turning your Bibles to uh, Joshua chapter 5. And I'm going to move this just out of the sun a little bit here. It's been such an enjoyable camp, and it's just a delight to uh, think with you through God's Word. Uh, I have to admit, I'm a little time-challenged. I really want to save the last two messages for the last half of Joshua uh, the book of Joshua, so we can think about how we lay hold of our spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, how we practically do that. And so what I hope to do is, uh, we've covered most aspects of chapter 5 already. Um, we'll pick up at the end of chapter 5. God willing, I hope to get through chapters 6 and 7 this morning. And then um, we'll do 8 and 9 and probably just highlight 10 tomorrow morning, God willing. And then we'll be in the last half of the book for our our last two sessions together. I forgot to mention last night during our study on uh, chapter 2 with the story of Rahab, uh, I mentioned about the scarlet thread and what what the scarlet means and where it's derived from, from the scarlet grub that was smashed. Um, Tikva is the the Hebrew word for line. Uh, She hung the scarlet line immediately in her window, and it's interesting that that Hebrew word tikvah means expectation or hope. Isn't that, isn't that cool? Her expectation and hope was in that scarlet thread, and our expectation and hope is in the blood of Christ, which that represents, and I forgot to bring that out last night. So um, we've talked now about uh, yesterday, the three signs. There was the wonder of God stopping the uh, Jordan River all the way up to Adam had an effect to the Dead Sea, and we brought out the application of that. When I was in aerospace engineering, <laughs> we often had to stop um, our meetings because B-52s or B-1s or F-16s were taking off at the end of the runway, so this kind of <laughs> brings back old memories. Anyway, so the other two signs were the memorials. One that was uh, a pillar of uh, stones that was erected at Gilgal, the place where God was going to roll away their reproach, and that was to remind them of the life of Christ. And then there was um, another pillar of remembrance set up in the Jordan by Joshua himself. Uh, A member from each tribe got to participate in the setting up of the the memorial that would be seen by everybody. And all believers are to experience the life of Christ and to share it. But when it comes to the death of Christ, only Joshua could set up the stones representing Christ in the Jordan. That's covered over with water, still there. We still remember it. We can't see it, but we still remember it. Um, We talked about the next thing that happened was circumcision. Uh, They were to have no confidence in the flesh. they hadn't been, the men had not been circumcised since they were at Sinai. And in Exodus chapter uh, 12, verse 4, you couldn't eat the Passover unless you were circumcised. So the men were circumcised. It showed faith in the Lord because it basically took out Israel's army, except for Joshua and Caleb. 
right? They had been the only two men that had been circumcised. And that allowed for the timing coming in on the 10th day of the first month, allowed for the lands to be tested four days, it allowed for the men to be circumcised, it fulfilled the pattern of exactly 40 years of probationary testing for Israel. The manna ceases in verse 12. God provided a table for his people in the wilderness, but now they were in Canaan, the land of blessing. And so they would uh, eat from that blessing, and God would no longer provide manna. And that brings us to verse 13. Uh, These next few verses are so important if you want to live the victorious life in Christ. Uh, The pattern that's shown here, we kind of see... um, on the eve of battle, maybe Joshua walking alone around the camp. And uh, as he's, he's walking, probably contemplating the, the battle, how is he going to overcome Jericho? Uh, we read that as he lifted up his eyes, behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for adversaries? Are you for us or against us? just wanted to know where this man stood. And the response of the man, which we see now is a theophany, a pre-incarnate visit of Christ. (coughs) Excuse me. He said, no, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to a servant? Then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take your sandals off your foot. Take your sandal off your foot, for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. Commander of the host. Commander of the army of the Lord. Sar is the Hebrew here. It could be translated prince, leader, captain. Here, commander. And uh, this is a pre-incarnate visit of of the second person of the Godhead. Same one who was in the burning bush before Moses and said, take off your sandals, this is holy ground. Same one who walked with Abraham in Genesis 18 in one-to-one companionship and fellowship. And the Lord says, I am the commander of the army of the Lord. What's Joshua do? He immediately falls down and worships. And so we have Joshua worshiping the Lord here. Then the Lord says, take the sandal off your foot. Joshua obeys. Um, He says, my Lord, say to thy servant, he acknowledges God's authority over him. So there's three things there. He worships, he acknowledges God's authority over him, and he obeys. Now yesterday we were both thinking with you about how obedience and faith leads to further revelation, manifestation uh, of the Lord to us. And here's a good example of this. Uh, At first, Joshua didn't know who who this man was who appeared before him. But he soon learns he's the Lord of the host. He's the Lord of the army. And he needed to worship. He needed to obey. um, He needed to uh, honor his authority. And this is really the same thing that uh, is a pathway to uh, further understanding the Lord in the New Testament and uh, a pathway to fruitfulness, right? To worship the Lord, to acknowledge his authority and and obedience. I find it interesting in the book of um, 1 Corinthians, the first epistle 
uh, actually the second epistle, but it's the first one that we have of uh, Paul's writing to the Corinthians. He's writing to a church that's all out of order, right? There are, there are a lot of problems in the church. Where does he start? If you examine the first 10 verses of 1 Corinthians, you'll find out that Paul does not directly start addressing the problems in the church and correcting it. What he does is he upholds the headship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Seven times he talks about the Lord Jesus Christ in 10 verses. It's the highest concentration of kurios, translated Lord, in all the New Testament in that portion. And if we want to be um, fruitful, joyful servants of the Lord, seeing the hand of the Lord, he is going to have to have the proper place. And so that, before any battles take place, this is what the Lord is showing his leader Joshua. I am the commander. This is my battle. Every victory is my victory. Right? We've been thinking about that through the week. So this is where it starts. Now... Now we get to the first battle. Now we're going to see three uh, enemies here in the next few chapters. We have, uh, first of all, Jericho, which is a picture of the world in a general sense. Uh, scripture gives us more specific pictures of the world as we uh, go through the Old Testament. We have Babylon, religious world. We have Sodom, the sensual world. We have uh, Egypt, the intellectual world, what, all the rationally good things that the world can offer. But in a general sense, Jericho is going to represent the world. And so we're going to think first about how the child of God, the soldier of the cross, overcomes the world. And then we're going to see in the sin of Achan, the flesh. And lastly, the trickery of the Gibbonites represents the, the deceitfulness of, of the devil or Satan. We'll look at each of these three adversaries, so to speak, and see what Scripture tells us about how to overcome each. Each one has a different tactic for overcoming, and that's presented to us in type in the book of Joshua. So, Chapter 6, verse 1, Now Jericho was securely shut up because of the children of Israel. None went out, none came in. Last night we were thinking about Rahab. She says, we've heard, we've all heard, but I know. See, that's the difference. All the people in Jericho had the information. But she says, I know, your God has given you this land, and he's the one true God. She turned from paganism and she's acknowledging Israel's God as a true God. And she says, I want mercy. If I don't get mercy, we're going to die. And so I, if anybody else in Jericho would have wanted mercy, God would have shown it to them. He's a merciful God. He longs to show mercy. But we see Jericho resisting the truth and securing themselves, trying to resist what they know God wants. And so there'll be no mercy. And the Lord said to Joshua, so now God's going to reveal his battle tactics for overcoming Jericho. I give you Jericho into your hand, its king, and the mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all you men of war. So that means all Israelites, all the, the army of Israel. 
And you shall go around the city once. This you shall do six days. And seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of the ram's horns before the ark. But the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. It shall come to pass when they make a long blast with the ram's horns, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, that all the people shall shout with a great shout. Then the wall of the city will flatten down, fall down flat, and the people shall go up, every man straight before him. Now, I want you just with your imagination to think about the leaders of the tribes of Israel standing before Joshua as Joshua is telling them, okay, here's the battle plan for taking down Jericho. And I could just see their mouths. Joshua, we haven't had a lot of warfare, but wow, this is out there. We've never heard of a, a tactic like this. But this was God's way because it was his victory, his battle. And so the very strategy of the whole thing was to convey that not just to Israel, but also to the inhabitants of Jericho. So you basically have um, the soldiers of Israel marching in silence, or not to say a word, and then you have these priests with the seven ram's horns, and they're blowing the, 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 their horns, and then you have the priests with the Ark of the Covenant bearing it, and then after that we read that there was a rear guard. Okay, twice that's mentioned in this text. In verse 9 and also verse 13. And that's important. Uh, Satan is deceitful. He doesn't send you a tweet or an email or a text message of how he's going to strike. And uh, where we fortify ourselves is usually not where he's going to hit. It's good to have a rear guard. Uh, don't let down your guard. Uh, keep a rear guard. So this is the battle plan, and uh, this is what they do. Now, uh, they're encamped in Gilgal, which is probably around a mile and a half, possibly two miles from Jericho. So they're, let's say two miles. They're walking two miles. They're going and circling the city. Archaeological evidence tells us about nine acres, um, probably an eighth by eighth mile. But they can't get really close to the wall, otherwise they might pick up an arrow or a stone. So they're walking a little ways away from the wall and going around. Let's say um, a perimeter walk of three quarters of a mile. So on the first day, they're walking uh, about five miles. Men don't say a word. Can you imagine what the inhabitants of Jericho was thinking? Here comes... Uh, this massive army, much bigger than they are. There's only 12,000 in the city. Oh, I'm sorry, that's uh, Ai. But it's, it's not a very big city, and Israel greatly outnumbers them. And, and they just walk around the city, and the priests are blowing their horns, and nobody says anything, and then they leave. And this goes on six days. Talk about uh, mental warfare, you know. Wow, are they going to do the same thing tomorrow? When's the attack coming? And so, no doubt, this had um, played a lot of anxiety on their minds. Well, in the seventh day, they make the two-mile stretch, and they go around the city seven times. And then there's the long blast on the trumpet. Everyone shouts, and the wall comes tumbling down. 
they would have walked between 8 and 10 miles on the morning of the attack. And again, God was showing that, um, you know, after, Brynn and I do a lot of hiking, but after 8 or 10 miles, we're kind of tired, right? That's a long stretch to be walking, especially if you're going uphill, which they would have been from Gilgal to Jericho. And so they're walking 8 to 10 miles. God was showing that the strength of Israel's army wasn't in their legs. It was in their God. So everything is designed uh, here to give God the glory. So they blow the, uh, the trumpets. The, the walls come tumbling down. It says uh, in verse 17, Now the city shall be doomed by the Lord to destruction, and it and all who are in it, only Rahab the harlot shall live, she and all who are with her in the house, because she hid the messengers that we sent. And you, by all means, abstain from the cursed things, lest you become accursed when you take of the cursed things and make the camp of Israel curse and trouble it. But all the silver and gold and vessels of bronze and iron are consecrated to the Lord. They shall come to the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted with the priests blew the trumpets. And it happened when the people heard the sound of the trumpet. And the people shouted with a great shout that the wall fell f- down flat. And the people went into the city, every man straight before him. And they took the city. They utterly destroyed all that was in the city. Well, at least they thought they did. At this point, they thought they did. Both man, woman, young, old, ox, sheep, donkey, with the edge of the sword. But Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the country, Go into the harlot's house, and from there bring out the woman and all that she has, as you swore to her. And the young men who had been spies went in, brought out Rahab, her father, mother, her brothers, and all that she had. So they brought out all of her relatives, them they, and then they left outside the camp of Israel. But they burned the city and all that was in it with fire. It goes on to say, they kept the metals for the Lord as had prescribed. Verse 25, Joshua spared Rahab the harlot, her father's house, and all that she had. And listen to this. So she dwells in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. As I mentioned last night, uh, it's most likely she's recorded in the genealogy of Christ in Matthew chapter 1, married a man from the tribe of Judah named uh, Solomon. And um, she was inducted into, like a proselyte, inducted into the commonwealth of Israel because of her faith. Hebrews says that she didn't perish with the rest in unbelief. She trusted what she, she heard, she knew, and she pleaded for mercy, and God gave her mercy and brought her into a blessed position in the tribe of Judah. Uh, and just an incredible story of God's faithfulness. Now, it says um, the plan was to burn the city holy, except for the metals, those who were to be kept for the Lord, um, they, they were the Lord's. Everything else was destroyed. It was to be devoted to the Lord. Anybody that touched it or took it, the devoted things is literally what it means here, uh, would be in judgment of the Lord. And we're going to see in a few minutes that there was a man named Achan who took the things of the Lord, the devoted things of the Lord. 
Um, now, I love looking at archaeological evidence. Um, I have a book, The Bible, Myth, or Divine Truth. It has a whole chapter about this. And so I just want to share with you what we know from archaeological evidence, starting with uh, Kathleen Kenyon's uh, digs in the 50s, and then uh, later, uh, Bryant Wood, Dr. Bryant Wood, one of the leading archaeologists of, um, in Jericho for probably two decades, some of his conclusions as they looked at the archaeological evidence uh, for Jericho. So one of the things that we know is that uh, there was an 11-foot-high plastered um, skiff, and uh, it was at a 35-degree angle. So you had this 11-foot uh, skiff, and above that, the wall of Jericho stood uh, 35 feet. Now, the idea was with this plastered skiff is that you could never put a ladder on this and get a footing. Right? So nobody's going to be able to climb the wall. So you got this 11-foot skiff, and then you got 35 feet above that. That's a pretty tall wall. That's pretty impenetrable, right? I love this because Bryant Wood actually looked at the biblical account, and he orders his findings according to the biblical account. Listen to this. At the time... Uh, of the Israelites' conquest, Jericho was heavily fortified, as the Bible implies, Joshua 2.15. Piles of mud bricks from the collapsed city wall were found at the base of the tell, verifying that the wall fell beneath itself, Joshua 6.20. An earthen embankment around the city required the fighters to go up into the city, Joshua chapter 6. Houses were built against a portion of the city wall that did not collapse. A portion of the north wall was found intact. Where do you think Rahab lived? On the north wall. Verifying that Rahab's house was there, Joshua 2.15. A layer of ash, three foot thick, with burned timbers and de debris of fire, demonstrate that the Israelites burned the whole city and everything in it, Joshua 6.24. The destruction occurred at the end of the 15th century B.C., precisely the time of the conquest of Cana, according to the internal chronology of the Bible. Many large jars full of charred grain were found in destroyed buildings. This is a rare find, because normally those who conquer a city plunder the city and take the grain. The large amount of grain in Jericho indicates that harvest had just been taken, according to Joshua 2.6. 6. The siege was short, not everyone eating up the grain, and the Israelites did not plunder the city. Now, beloved, that's what the archaeological evidence suggests, and it's an exact fit with the biblical account. Uh, truth is truth, whether it's in the ground or in Scripture. God is the God of truth. Truth never contradicts itself. And so here we have a wonderful uh, illustration from science that the historicity of the Bible is correct. Now, let's talk about uh, Jericho. As I mentioned, Jericho is a symbol of the world. And um, I think probably if you just had two verses to think about, uh, 1 John 5, 4, Faith overcomes the world, right? This is our victory, overcometh the world by faith. I'm sorry, whoever is born of God overcometh the world. This is our victory, and our faith overcomes the world. 
And then also in Romans 12, verse 2, Paul says, Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you prove what is the good, acceptable, perfect will of God. And so the idea of, of the world is don't conform. Don't accept the philosophies and the traditions of the world. Paul speaks about this in uh, Colossians chapter 2 as well. Uh, it's, it's like this, you know, we have this river here. It's not flowing very fast this year, but it's, it's kind of like this current. And the believer is in this river, and there's this constant current to kind of force them downstream, to go with the flow. And it takes real tenacity to just plant your feet and say, uh, no, I'm not going to conform. I'm going to transform my mind. Whatever God tells me to do, what he wants, that's what I want. That's a good prayer, by the way. Just pray, God, teach me to want what you want. Teach me to hate what you hate. And so those who are born of God have the Spirit of God, and we're able to stand fast by the renewing of our mind and not conform to a corrupt system that's on its way um, to total destruction. Again, we're pressed for time, so I just want to get into chapter 7. It's a sad chapter. It's a very sad chapter. Um, We read of a man named Achan. Um, It says in verse 1, But the children of Israel committed a trespass regarding the accursed things for Achan. And then he gives us genealogies. It goes on to say that he took some of the accursed things. Verse 2, now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is besides Beth-Avon, on the east side of Bethel, and spoke to them, saying, Go up, spy out the country. So the men went up and spied out Ai. He's gathering information. Uh, Apparently the Lord didn't tell him to do this, but Joshua sent it out to gather information. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not let all the people go up, but let... About two or 3,000 men go up and attack Ai. Now, Ai was a, t- a city of 12,000 people, so they probably had an army around 3,000 men. So he says, don't let all the people go up. Um, you know, just let 3,000 men go up. By the way, there was no casualties at Jericho. How would you like to go into battle where you never lose a soldier? And that, that, that's, that's kind of victory that the Lord gives. That's not a natural victory. It wasn't natural tactics. Uh, God was saying, I'm above all these things. Just trust me. It may not make sense, but just go with me with it. And uh, you'll, you'll share in the victory. And so, um, Joshua does not consult the Lord. And the spies come back and say, this is, this is a smaller deal than Jericho. Um, you know, only send two or 3,000. It was so easy the last time, Right? Well, now we're being introduced to human thinking, the flesh. Uh, The flesh is making decisions here. It's not seeking uh, the power and wisdom of God. It's going in the power and wisdom of its own flesh. We don't need to bother the Lord with this one. You ever think like that in decisions? Oh, this is a little decision. This isn't a big decision. Beloved, we need the Lord on everything, right? The big and the small. Uh, things don't ever think that anything's too small not to pray about we need the we don't want to make a mistake on anything we just want to go on with the lord 
So about 3,000 men went up there from the people, but they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai struck down about 36 men, and they chased them. Wow. They knew something was wrong. They went against this smaller city, and hey, this isn't like it was before. And 36 of their comrades die in the battle, and they flee before uh, those coming out of Ai. Well, this is a different, uh, this is a different enemy. And the tactics of overcoming the world don't work with the flesh. Um, don't, don't conform is the main message for overcoming the world. But when it comes to the flesh, it's, it's repent, confess, and mortify. And again, uh, let's go to the New Testament on this. I'm just going to give you two verses to, to support this. And in Colossians 3, 5, And I spoke on this two years ago. The, he says, Paul says, Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. And then he goes on about uh, saying, Put off the old man and put on the new man. Uh, the old man is who we were in Christ, and that was crucified with him positionally 2,000 years ago. The new man is who we are in Christ. And what Paul is saying is, uh, outwardly reflect what's the inward reality. Put that on. We've got a beautiful picture of this in the burnt offering, which is first talked about in chapter 1 of Leviticus, and then it's picked up again in chapter 7. And... Um, you know, if, um, let's say Noad, he just, uh, he wants to praise the Lord and he brings a burnt offering to the priest at the tabernacle. Let's say he brings a bullock. Um, he would bring the, the bullock and, and the, the priest would burn uh, parts of it on the bronze altar, parts were burned outside the camp and so forth. Everything of that animal was burned except the skin. The priest got that, the offering priest. What do you do with the skin? Well, you make coverings out of it, right? So when the priests were officiating in the tabernacle, they had to have on their priestly garb. If they didn't, they died. But outside the tabernacle, the very skin of the animal was then used to make coverings. And so what did you see as the priest walked outside the tabernacle? You didn't see the priest, you saw the sacrifice. And see, that's the whole idea, is that the Lord Jesus wants us to not be seen. He wants to be seen in us. The sacrifice needs to be seen. And so as we walk in the Lord, um, then putting on Christ, then he is reflected in an outward way. All right, and then in Romans chapter 8, Nothing personal with anybody on this side of the audience here. I love you all just as much as people on this side. Romans chapter 8. Uh, this is a lovely portion of Scripture. In chapter 7, you, you read of Paul struggling. Um, he, he knows the law of God in his mind, 
but there's a law in his members, and these two things oppose each other, and uh, it's, it's just a, a brutal, ongoing thing. And he doesn't find the resolve within himself uh, to serve the Lord. And scholars will argue, well, is this pre-incarnate Paul or post-incarnate Paul? It doesn't matter. If you're unregenerate in the flesh, or if you're a believer acting in the flesh, you can't please God. Period. The flesh cannot please God in any shape or form. And so, um, chapter 8 gives us a solution. It's the Spirit of God within the believer. I just love this. In verse 8, he says, So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Has anybody been in the flesh this week? Two hands. Okay. <laughs> Confess that before the Lord's Supper, okay? But what, it, what it, Paul is saying is, that if we're acting in the flesh like Achan did, you can't please the Lord. Actually, we anger the Lord. But listen to this. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he's not his. So in verse 8, this is a a practical thing. If we're acting in the flesh, we can't please God. But in verse 9, this is a positional truth. This is how God sees us in Christ. He doesn't see us dead in the flesh anymore. He sees us alive in Christ. If you have the Spirit of God, you're His. And so that's kind of what makes this passage a little hard, is discerning what's practical truth and positional truth. And then in verse 13, he says, For you, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And I think I gave the illustration two years ago of a family member. Let's say you lived back in uh, Roman times, and you had a family member that had done something that had angered the Roman Empire, and they they were sentenced to death. And uh, you watched your family member being nailed to a cross, And they're going to go through this long, agonizing death process of dying. Would it make any sense for your family to cook up this nice chicken noodle soup with vegetables and so forth and bring a bowl of soup and a stepladder to your dying family member, climb the stepladder and say, here, my son, uh, have some of this soup. This will help you. Does that make any sense at all? No, he's going to die. And all you're doing is prolonging it. So that's the idea in Colossians 3, 5. Don't do the deeds of the flesh. You just strengthen the flesh's resolve to stand against the Lord. Don't do it. All right? It's, it's, it's strengthening the flesh so when the day of testing comes, it will be the flesh who wins the trial and not the, the spiritual man. Uh, what you're feeding on is going to decide what the victory is or isn't. So in Romans 8.13, we have another verse. He says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now this is a present active indicative verb, um, both verbs. And so the idea is that the believer is like on a soldier on duty, on constant alert. And as soon as I am mindful of a thought, I had to do this this morning right before I, I spoke. A thought came in my head, and I was thinking about it, and I thought, oh, Lord, what am I doing? 
You guys ever have a moment like that? Oh, three hands. <laughs> and um, I said, Lord, I am so sorry. Please forgive me. And so we're, we're bringing our thought life into conformity to what has Christ's approval, right? It's that Philippians 4.8 test. I don't, I don't want to think about anything that's not pure, lovely, uh, righteous, just. That, that's a good uh, test for what we, we hear and what we see, what we think on. And, uh, I mean, we have uh, a corrupt nature within that wants its own way, and, and the flesh is going to come up with these things. Don't, let, don't go with it. Don't let your imagination go with it. If it's, if it's nasty, just <laughs> confess it to the Lord, renew your mind, and then go on with Him. And so, two things in the flesh. In the world, it was don't conform. But dealing with the flesh, it is this idea of confession, repentance, and mortification, constantly putting to death. It's not living like the old man, like we were in Adam. It's allowing Christ within to be reflected out in everything we do. As I grow in the Lord, I'm more convinced that it isn't the things that we do that God is so concerned about. It is the reflection of his son in those things that is the key thing. I mean, he could use trees and rocks and whatever to do his will, but to use us, children of Adam, that have been regenerated, have a spirit in it, to do the things that are spectacular and reflect the character of God. That's amazing. If we're just doing things for the Lord and not reflecting the character of Christ in them, we're doing more harm than good to the cause of Christ. Right? How many times have you seen a new believer zealous for the Lord, wants to go out and do a bunch of things, but they don't have the character development yet. And so the things they say, their actions, their anger, things that come out, it just makes the whole thing worse. So you cannot separate the character of Christ from the works of Christ that he wants to do in your life. In everything that we do, we're to be a reflection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So back to Joshua, and we'll just quickly wrap up here. In Joshua uh, chapter 7. It's a sad thing. Um, A couple things are sad in this chapter. I think I'll move back to this direction now. I don't want anybody on this side of the audience feeling left out. So, how does Joshua respond to this? Well, he's praying. Verse 7, Alas, Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us? Oh, that we had been content and dwelt on the other side of the Jordan. If this wasn't in Scripture, I couldn't believe Joshua would say it. But he does say it. O Lord, what shall I say when Israel turns its back before its enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear it and surround us and cut us off our name from the earth. Then what will you do for your great name? (laughs) As if God's not in control, right? I love what the Lord says. Get up. Get up. 
Quit your whining. Get up. Why do you lie thus on your face? Beloved, don't ever whine to the Lord in prayer. That's the flesh. It's okay to be like Habakkuk. When he doesn't understand things, he gets alone with God and he talks it out. He says, Lord, how long? Lord, why? Those are good questions to ask the Lord and talk it through. But we're not whining before the Lord. We're coming with expectation. We're coming with um, a, an, the perception that God is in control. He's going to do what will honor his name. And then if we are walking with him, we're going to share in that victory with him. And so that mindset of coming into Lord prayer in thankfulness and rejoicing when things don't make sense show that we really trust him. So this is, this, Joshua's not a perfect man. He's not a perfect type of Christ, but he's uh, a faithful man that God is working with. And so uh, we find out that there's sin in the camp. Don't ever think that your secret sins don't hurt the body of Christ. Don't think that your secret sins that maybe nobody else knows about uh, doesn't hurt the cause of Christ and bring disdain upon his name. All sin tears, all sin grieves the Lord, quenches the Holy Spirit. We cannot afford to live quenched lives. We need spirit-filled lives. We need nothing, no valve closed, no cloud between to experience the goodness of God. And so uh, God says uh, to Joshua, there's sin in the camp. And so the next morning, they gather the nations, and Judah's taken, and then the clan's taken, a family's taken, it comes down to Achan, and he's the guilty culprit. And he confesses. Joshua says, confess. And he says, well, I saw among the spoils a beautiful Babylonian garment, 200 shekels of silver, a wedge of gold, weighing 50 shekels. I cover them, I took them, and they are hidden in the earth in the midst of the tent with his silver under it, which means his family probably was well aware of it. By the way, he saw a Babylonian garment. Where is he going to wear that? <laughs> right? I mean, that'd be like, i got to be careful here, but it'd be like walking into the church meeting in a swimwear or something. You're not going to hide that. Uh, he, it's not something he could wear. It was pagan attire, and everybody would know it for that. Israel had very strict um, regulations on what the clothing that they would wear. So he couldn't wear it. He couldn't show it off. He just coveted it. Coveted what made no sense at all. There is an insanity to sin. The flesh doesn't make sense. It wants things that, that don't make any sense at all. Ah, the gold and silver, those were the Lord. So he took of the, the things that were dedicated to the Lord. His family most likely was in on it because it was hidden in the tent. And uh, it's a sad day. We find out that he, his, his family, everything um, was stoned and put to death. Sin was dealt with in the camp. God's wrath was vindicated. His name was vindicated. And then we see that now, as a, a body, they're going to be victorious. In fact, nobody stands against them from here on. They've learned their lesson. Sin, any sin in the camp, tears. It causes a lack of blessing. It angers the Lord. And so, within our local churches, 
uh, we're not to accept those that are in active sin. First Corinthians chapter five, we're not to even eat a meal with someone that says, I'm a brother in the Lord, and they're in fornication. Right? They may say they're a brother, but we're to judge the fruits. If they're not walking with the Lord, how could we possibly enjoy fellowship with them? Right? My fellowship with another believer goes up before it goes down. If I'm in fellowship with the Lord and another believer's in fellowship with the Lord, then we can share his fellowship. In Acts 2.42, there's an article, The Fellowship. It's his fellowship. And that's what we get to enjoy together. If someone's in sin, they can't possibly in fellowship with the Lord. We have to deal with that. And so reception in the local assembly is just saying, we've heard your profession of faith. You're in agreement with our statement of faith here. You're going to obey the elders as unto the Lord. And um, we're going to plug you into the privileges and responsibilities of body life as long as you keep your nose clean. But if you get into sin, we love you and we love the Lord. We've got to deal with it. And so let's not be soft on sin. It has to be dealt with for the sake of the body. And that's one of the things that really comes out uh, from this chapter. Sad. It's the laws of the harvest. I grew up on a wheat farm in Kansas, and um, there's three laws of the harvest. You reap what you sow, you reap more than what you sow, and you reap later than what you sow. If you put wheat in the ground, you don't get corn or soybeans, you get wheat. But if you put one kernel of wheat in the ground, you don't get one kernel back, you get 30, 60, or 100 fold. And you don't put the, the kernel of wheat in the ground on Monday and pull the combine out on Tuesday. It doesn't work that way. There's going to be a time. Well, Paul says in Galatians 6 that if we sow to the flesh, we're going to reap in corruption. And beloved, you'll reap much more than what you ever sowed. And you're going to reap it much longer than you ever thought you would. I can't tell you in counseling how many people weeped. If I only would have known, if I only counted the cost, they could escape the devastation. Count the cost ahead of time. The flesh is, any of our flesh in this room or this auditorium in creation is capable of doing the worst things. Any of us. Count the cost to the devastation to the body, devastation to the family, to loved ones, it's just not worth it. Confess, repent, mortify the flesh. Father, we thank you for our text this morning. We thank you, Father, that even way back in the Old Testament, you have these wonderful truths patterned for us in the narrative. We pray, Father, that we would be a people that acknowledge the Lord Jesus as head and Lord and obey him. We pray, Father, that we would go forth on that platform, understanding that his ways are above our ways, and it probably will not make sense to us often. But we pray we would just obey. Every victory is his victory. We pray, Father, that we would not conform to the world, but transform our minds to that good, acceptable, perfect will. We pray, Father, that we would not let our flesh rule our behavior, but the spiritual man, the spirit of God within and that when we do fall short, that we would immediately confess, repent, and then continue to mortify, put to death. Father, help us not to make any occasion for the flesh, to accept it in any way. Uh, we want to be uh, on constant alert, mortifying any thought that comes in our mind that you wouldn't approve of. And we don't want to do the deeds of the flesh to strengthen our flesh's resolve 
to oppose the Spirit of God. So, Father, we thank you for these wonderful truths. Please bless them to our heart, we ask in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.